we have inherited a monumental revelation on December 13th, if you were here, if not, go back, of last year that dove us into an understanding of God as a giver. Does anybody remember that? We talked about how God, the, um, the generosity of God. I'm on chapter three of that book right now, writing it. But um, dove us into an understanding of God as a giver. I don't know what this has done for you, but it has revolutionized me, my theology, and my understanding of Abba's nature and goodness. And this has contributed greatly to today's topic of of salvation. Listen to this statement. You and I, if you're saved, you and I were not saved from, we were saved for. Okay? I'm going to explain this. You and I were not saved from, we were saved for. This massive difference, okay? So Jesus is not our just, I mean, I guess it's included in this, but Jesus is not just our get-out-of-hell-free card so we can avoid hell. He's our access into union and covenant with God. So we're not, for example, saved from hell. We're saved for him. And of course, that results in us being saved from hell. But if we stop at what we've been saved from, then we're going to stop way short of what salvation was ever intended to do. However, the way most people were taught salvation was, myself included, was this. If you were to get in a car accident tonight, where would you go? When, I, when, when most of us were growing up, that's kind of how salvation... Did anybody have those... Uh, what was the play um, where you had heaven and hell? What was that thing called? Does anybody remember? Um, and the whole play at church was about like these people who had died and one went to hell and one went to heaven and all that stuff. What, does anybody remember what it was called? I don't remember what it was called, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Some, if, you, if I mentioned the name of it, you would probably remember it. But anyway, and, uh, but, the, but the, whole, the whole thing, and I'm not even saying this is wrong. It just stops, like I said, way short. Is that, you know, like, hey, it, like a fear tactic almost. Like, hey, if you, if you get hit by a bus tonight, first of all, the, the odds of that happening are really low. You know what I'm saying? So, so we're giving people these scenarios that will never happen. But if you were to get hit by a bus, where would you go? If it's not heaven, if you're not 100% sure, you better pray. And it's like, what? I, and where, I never heard this. You and I, hopefully you did, but never heard God is fascinated with you, and he wants you close. What do you say? Because as a kid, I would have been like, "Eh, maybe, you know, whatever. And we know that. We know that. And the reason because of that is because the God I was introduced to was a God that wasn't interested. What? So, you know, great. You know what I mean? If it was the God that he's really revealing right now to me and you through Jesus then that sounds real attractive. But it was usually, typically, what are you being saved from? So are you nasty? Are you dirty? And are you going to hell if you die? If so, you need to pray. Right? And again, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that is not even close to what Jesus came to do. So stay with me. You don't have to agree. This avoidance-based teaching has resulted in a plethora of, of Christians, and I used to be one of these, who believe that they're going to heaven but have no relationship with God. 
Anybody in Colombia, if you ask, are you, are you going to heaven when you die? They typically would yes. They have no relationship with God. How, how does that happen? Right? It's, it's because of that teaching. It's because we thought salvation, for the majority, salvation was getting you out of hell and into heaven. And very rarely do we see what salvation actually is, which is a covenant you enter into with God. So, they've prayed the prayer to avoid hell, and now it's cruise control until Jesus steals me or I die and go to heaven. Right now, even, in a week of mass chaos, you see so many people looking forward to heaven because of the chaos in the world, when the chaos in the world is a result of people who are supposed to be so one with Jesus and so co-seated with him that we host his kingdom here. The world is drained of peace because it's devoid of the revelation of his kingdom come, which is a kingdom of peace. Right? Isaiah said, of the increase of, and I think I even have it right now. Yeah. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. From what time? The time of Jesus. So we're 2,000 years into his kingdom. I know people would disagree with me. That's just my stance. We're 2,000 years into his kingdom being established and it growing. So you could look at right now, well, not everybody's healthy. But the, the average death age in Jesus' time was about 32 or 33. So typically, people would pass away when they're about 32 or 33 years old. Today, it's about 72 so are we getting healthier or are we getting less healthy? We're getting healthier. So is his kingdom, you, you, know, you see what I'm saying? It all depends on how you look at things, okay? So the way God's kingdom will fill and transform creation is you and I reflecting his image into it. So salvation is God through Jesus bringing us back into our place in him as sons and daughters and perfect image bearers of God. We don't receive it through works. In fact, we need it because of our works. We receive it by having the guts to cease finding worth in our production, open our hands wide, and letting Papa give us our worth. One more time, one more time. I'm not in a hurry today. We don't receive salvation through our works. We need salvation because of our works. Okay? We receive it by having the guts, and I say that because it's so difficult, to cease finding our worth in our production and what we do, and instead opening our hands wide and letting Him give us our worth. Man, y'all get real quiet in the beginning of these. Jesus, I think it's because most of y'all are like, is he about to say something I don't agree with? Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross is the fully exposed picture of God's affection toward you and I. It's as if, excuse me, it's as if his outstretched, nail-pierced hands are saying, 
this is how much I love you. And I think of that because I have a daughter, and all the time I'll say, Veda, do you know how much I love you? And she'll say, this much? And I'll be like, no, bigger. And she'll, you know, keep trying to. So when I think about the cross and I'm thinking of Jesus, that's just naturally how I think about it, right? But to get to the understanding of save four, and this is where I'm going to step into some murky territory, but this is not what I'm going to spend the day on. I do think we have to hit this to talk about salvation, though. To get to the understanding of save four, I believe we have to dismantle the subconscious idea that Satan is a god. We, we of course, would never say that. But most of our ideas of Christianity, and the reason we have a safe from culture, is because we have been greatly influenced by dualism and Gnosticism. Which is, not to hit these, this is for a whole other week, but the, which is the thinking that it's good versus evil. There's, dual, there's, there's a God of evil present, there's a God that's good present, and they're against each other. That's what dualism is, or Gnosticism is. Okay? That it's the devil who is God's rival. That the physical, material world is the devil's domain. And the floaty, airy, ghostly, spiritual world is God's domain. That's what this means. Okay? And that sounds really familiar because that's what most of us believe. That is, here's God, here's the devil. Always fighting each other. One might win one day, one might win the other day. And we're in the middle getting pulled by both. And we might get pulled this way one day, and we might get pulled this way another day. Sounds really familiar. Again, that's what most of us believe. We are greatly influenced by Greece in everything. Our, our uh, government, our economy, all of the stuff in America is greatly influenced by Greece, including our religion. This, this is a heretical, this isn't Christianity I'm talking about. This is Roman, Greco-Roman believing, dualism. This is Plato. This is Aristotle, philosophers, okay? So, it's not Christianity. The devil, this is going to help a lot of you. I want you to think about this before I say this, okay? Turn your brains. The devil is a created being. He's not eternal. He was, he was an eternal past. The devil was created. He's no more capable of defeating God than you and I are. Well, Josh, I don't know. I, I'm just telling you the Bible. <laughs> Psalm 24.1 says this. Or I, I think I, earlier I said Jeremiah. This is Psalms. Excuse me, I misquoted that. It says this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. The earth. The earth is whose? The Lord's and everything in it. The world, the big bad world, and all its people belong to him. 1 John 3.8 says this, The reason that the Son of God was revealed 
was to undo and destroy the works of the devil. John 3.17 says this. If I could get my cable to stop pulling on me. John 3.17 says that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be what? Saved. Jesus came into the world not to blow it up, but to bring it into salvation. This starts to make sense when he starts saying things like, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The king, repent, the kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. The reason the devil had to tempt, think about this, the reason the devil had to tempt Adam and Eve to sin in the beginning was because he alone had no power and no authority to do anything. Think about it. Why did the devil have to go to Adam and Eve to do it? Unless he had absolutely no authority to do anything, but he saw two image bearers who had complete authority over the whole thing. Even in the poetic book of Job, the devil has to ask God permission to touch his servant. In the book of Job, the devil cannot touch Job until he goes and asks God for permission. Now, it's my, my personal belief is Job is a very poetic book. It's included in the poetic books in, uh, in school and in, if you divide the Bible up. But um, the whole point is the, the devil has to go to Job to ask. It has to go to God to ask. He didn't, can't just go touch Job. So if you have any authority at all, would you have to go ask God permission course not. Y'all with me? Okay. So the devil and evil are not God's rival. Hang with me. Because a rival indicates somebody who has the potential to win. Ex well, I was going to say except when Clemson Carolina played, but I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I say that and then watch next year. Trevor Lawrence is gone. ETN is gone, and we're going to get beaten. I'm just joking. But, so the devil and evil are not God's rival, and because of Jesus, through salvation, they aren't even our rivals. He's defeated. He's nothing. It's not God versus the devil. It's God and goodness spreading over the earth by way of his image bearers. One more time. It is not... God versus the devil. It's God establishing his goodness across the globe through his image bearers that the devil cannot touch. He's nothing. He's a flea. He's an ant. My goal today is, is to greatly, greatly dismantle our idea of the devil. That's most of my goal in salvation. Because if you think I'm saved from the big, bad, Goliath devil, then you're going to live your whole life looking back and never have the capability to turn around and look forward because you're so afraid of what's behind you. And this is where a lot of us are. That's why a lot of us are like, please get us out of here. Please get us out of here. The world's getting bad. Certain political parties are being elected. Just get us out. 
The reason we're doing that is because we have our eyes behind us at what we were taught was big and scary. That's actually not big and scary compared to the victory that we've been reborn into. I say this all, you were a sinner saved by grace for about half a second. And now you're no longer a sinner. And I know people would argue with that, but it is illegal for me to be saved and call myself a sinner anymore. Sinners aren't saved. Lord, help us. See, that was a rabbit trail, and that's why I don't do them a lot. Um, and I just lied, because I do do them a lot. We, we, not the devil, are the authority in the earth. Amen. We, not the devil, are the authority in the earth. We, as in those who are believers. If there is still evil present, and I'm going to spend weeks on it, so just... Don't ask questions about this. If there is evil still present in the cosmos, it's just that his image bearers haven't expelled it completely yet. But that is our mission, to partner with Jesus in bringing his kingdom here. So you see why it's so short to say that we've been saved to escape something. We've been saved to experience and shed abroad the goodness of our bridegroom king. An orthodox view of salvation has never been more important, in my opinion, than it is today. The Greek word for salvation is, and most of us have heard this, sozo. Sozo. Here's what this means. You ready? It's a plethora of meanings, but it's, it means this. To save, to keep, to preserve, to restore to rescue, to be made well, to heal, to restore to health, and to, this is my favorite, to be made whole. That's what it means. This is so much more than a repeated prayer. This is regeneration of your authentic, unstained self. This is everything he knit you together for being restored redeemed, and put on display as he illuminates your being. This is so significant that Jesus called it what we all know as being born again. So let's go to Ephesians 2. And the funny thing about everything I just said is we're about to, in the second verse, we're going to run into something that sounds like it's contradicting some stuff I just said. So I'm going to explain that. But I want to spend a lot of time on salvation, so you're just going to have to trust me with some of it. But Ephesians 2 and I probably should have already turned there since I told you all to do that. There we go. And um, I'm going to read this in the Passion Translation. Sorry about that, but uh, I just like this, how it sounds in the Passion Translation. Um, it says this. And his fullness fills you, even though you were once like corpses, dead in your sins and offenses. Now, here, now here's the verse right here. Check this out. It wasn't long ago that you lived in the religion, customs, and value of this world. Now listen to this. Obeying the dark ruler of the earthly realm. See how that sounds different? Who fills the atmosphere with his authority and works diligently in the hearts of those who are... Dis this is the key verse. Works diligently in the hearts of those who are disobedient to the truth of God. I'm going to stop right there and explain it because nobody's going to pay attention to the rest if they think that says what it doesn't say. Um, Paul had just, in Ephesians 1, had just talked about being joined with Christ in union in a beautiful intro chapter, which is chapter 1. Then here, in Ephesians 2, we're going to read, he goes deeper 
and begins exploring the implications of this union and how, uh, and how it affects our lives here and now, okay? So this is what it says in verse 2, um, in light of everything I just talked about before. The Aramaic translation. Now, a couple of things you need to remember is, number one, they're under the power of Rome. Rome considered their emperors gods, Okay? So think about this. If we had a, a governmental system that considered our leaders gods, talk about jacked up, right? <laughs> Some of us do. But um, just a joke. Okay? The devil, let me just read my notes here. The devil does have his own authority. He didn't derive his own authority, but he was given it by who? It says right here. Those who are disobedient to the truth. In fact, in verse 3, we're about to read this, Paul talks about our corruption to show how this dark ruler leveraged his authority. But to be clear, as it says all throughout the New Testament, Jesus defeated all powers and authorities and gave humans back their authority. When those in dominion over creation gave it away, it results in the one receiving it, in this case the evil one, having that authority. Not his, but ours that we gave. Okay, But we can't read this through our modern lens. We cannot read this through how we've been taught. We have to read this, or we have to really give a modern lens through orthodoxy. Okay? So we don't need to look at our world and see Scripture through it. We need to have Scripture right here and through Scripture see our world. Okay? But, this is what I was going to say earlier, the Aramaic phrase when it says of this world in verse 2 refers to the authority of secular governments. So in the Aramaic, it's actually referring to secular people in governmental power as the evil ones. Kind of funny. So in an age where Greek leaders like Alexander the Great had previously governed the entire known world, and at the time of Paul uh, writing this, Rome being the world's mega power, I don't believe personally Paul is referring entirely here to the work of the devil alone, but of the work of the evil one in humans who are disobedient to the truth of God, especially those in authority. Some of y'all are going to have to go back and listen to that. I know it was a lot. Um, and a modern-day example of this would be, would be like this. If somebody became president, and this is what Paul's talking about. If somebody became president in the, in the United States and passed every evil law there was to pass, I mean all of them, okay? We would say things like this. The devil is really, ha- really having his way in America, right? That's what Paul's talking about that there were ones who were disobedient to the truth, specifically in leadership, that their authority, quite literally in Rome and Greek, was filling the earth. They took over the whole known world. That were using that to bring people into religion, customs, and values of that world. Okay, So I just wanted to stop right there and explain that, because if you just read it at surface level, you would think, man, the devil's really got a lot of authority. We're going to keep reading this, and Paul's going to really go deeper and explain what he's talking about. Okay, verse 3. The corruption that was in us from birth was expressed through the deeds and desires of our self-life. Okay, 
we lived by whatever natural cravings and thoughts our minds dictated, living as rebellious children subject to God's wrath like everyone else. Now, now I want you to hear this right here. We can't hear this enough. But God still loved us with such great love. He is so rich in compassion and mercy. Even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins, he united us into the very life of Christ and saved us by his wonderful grace. He has raised us up with Christ, the exalted one, and we ascended, this is the Aramaic, we ascended with him into the glorious perfection and authority of the heavenly realm, and we are now, right now, right now, co-seated as one with Christ. Co-seated right now as one with Christ. Throughout, How does that change how we pray? That we're not praying up, we're actually praying down. I, see, if you're co-seated with Jesus, you're not begging. You're speaking. How does, that, how does that change how we do stuff? Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, is what it says. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open to you. Why? Because we are co-seated now with Christ. I mean, how does this change how we worship? That we're not worshiping up, we're worshiping from. So cool. Throughout, listen to this, throughout the coming ages, we will be the visible display of the infinite, limitless riches of his grace and kindness, which was showered upon us in Jesus. We will be the visible display of his limitless grace and kindness. For it was only through this wonderful grace that we believed in him. Nothing we did could ever earn this salvation, for it was the gracious gift from God brought, uh, that brought us to Christ, so that no one will ever be able to boast, for salvation, listen to this, is never a reward for good works or human striving. I got some stuff on this in just a second. Verse 10, we have become his poetry, a recreated people that will fulfill the destiny he has given each of us. For we are joined to Jesus, the anointed one, even before we were born. God planned and advanced our destiny and the good works we would do to fulfill it. I'm going to stop right there and make some notes or kind of mention some things, okay? So how do we achieve salvation? Question number one, how do we achieve salvation? Jesus says it right here, okay? You cannot achieve it. Verse 5. Um, that even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins, he, he united us into the very life of Christ. And then if you jump down to verse 8, for it was only through that grace that we believed in him. Nothing we did could ever earn this salvation, for it was a gift that brought us to Christ. Salvation is never a reward for good works or human striving. Okay? So how do we achieve salvation? We did not and could not earn full and complete salvation on our own. I want to um, try my best to explain this the way that the Lord gave it to me. 
because this really has shifted a lot of stuff that I've been seeing. Seeing all of this through the lens of God as a giver, that his nature is to give, not to receive. He loves receiving, but what he loves the most is to give. Okay? And I'm not even talking about, you know, Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I'm talking about he enjoys giving goodness to us. Sometimes it looks like him taking stuff away too. But his nature is to give, not to sit on his big mighty throne and just receive. Okay? Though he loves receiving. Seeing salvation through that, I want you to think about this. We did not, could not earn full and complete salvation on our own, but not because we're incapable of perfection. I mean, we are. But, but salvation wasn't something we could not earn because we were incapable of being perfect, though we are. We could not earn it because it's not a reward for being perfect in the first place. So we're gonna, we stop way short if we say Jesus had to come because we couldn't be perfect. No, 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 no. Jesus had to come because even if we were perfect, we couldn't achieve this. Am I messing with you a little bit? It is a gift for being the object of God's relentless love. You can't earn the love that you had before you were born. How unbelievable, how unbelievable is this? Right? Every other religion all throughout history is based on what you do. Christianity is based on how willing you are to do this and receive. If you just want a case study on why God is real and the other gods are false, that's it right there that God's willing to stake his existence on us receiving from him. In order to receive from something, it's got to be real. For me to give, 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 it can be a big hunk of metal. And all of this, from the beginning, Abraham's covenant. We taught on this, Abraham's covenant, he was incapable of doing that covenant on his own. So he goes to sleep and he has this vision of floating things and it was God stepping in saying, I know you're not going to be able to do this on your own, so I'm going to do it for you. Who was Abraham to earn that? I mean, this is, this is the God all throughout creation and all throughout history was a giver and it climaxed at salvation. So salvation, what does it do? It earns you right standing with God. It co-seats you with Jesus and makes you so pure through Jesus that you become a dwelling for the Holy Spirit of God himself. What was once contained in the Holy of Holies, that an entire process had to be gone through in order to purify it for the Spirit of God to dwell there, you and I now are. Stains included. The type of salvation you and I have could not possibly come through us, but only through God himself. Jesus was the perfect human. He was fully God, but he was the perfect human. He perfectly showed us how to be both fully human, and I, I know what I'm about to say, and fully, let's say it like this, filled with God. He was fully God, okay? 
He showed us what it looks like to be fully human and yet at the same time full of God. Only God himself could do such a thing for us and only through receiving from what he through Jesus accomplished can we enjoy it. So this this starts to give me, and I hope it does for you, freedom that you couldn't earn it if you were perfect. You couldn't earn it. Revelation 13, 8 says this, that Jesus was the lamb that was crucified or slaughtered from the foundation of the earth. Huh? Jesus, you ready for this? Jesus on a cross was God's plan A. It wasn't God saying, well, humans tried, they messed it up, so I guess now we got to go to plan B. Jesus, you're up. You know? Jesus like, what did I do? Like, you know, <laughs> you know? That, that, that wasn't it. Now well, you go. But um, <laughs> just messing, just messing. But that, that, was, that wasn't it. Jesus, Revelation was the lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the earth. When he said, let there be light, he had Jesus on a cross in mind. So what does this mean? This really has to reshape how a lot of us view what salvation is. This is why we're talking about it today. It really has to reshape it. It's not something that you earn It's not something that you work your way into. It's something that through trust and a willingness to stop trying to earn it that you receive. Man, I want to go deeper there, but I'm going to move on. i got a couple of notes. We might come back there. But a second question, I'm almost done, is, and I want to just hit this while we're talking about, can you lose salvation? If you disagree with me on this, rock and roll, it's all good. Okay, but let me ask you, how can you lose by works what you didn't earn by works? Serious question. How can you lose by the works of your hand what you didn't earn by the works of your hand? So that's really difficult. Veda, let me say like this, you, you and I can no more lose salvation than Veda can lose being our daughter. She can't. No matter what she does, she could run. And let me, let me say it like this. This is something the Lord, I was, I was in here early this morning because I've just been stirred lately. So I, just, I had to get here early to process. And um, so I was walking through here at about 6.30 this morning. And um, as I was walking around, the Lord just whispered this to me. And I just want to just mention this. And this is a whole other topic, but just hang with me. Um, he mentioned this, that the prodigal son started at home. Just think for a second. Think about how we view salvation. Think about how we view the lost. The the story of the prodigal son was Jesus giving a parable of someone coming home, right? But they started at home. And so right here, this will be the question of, well, are people born into sin? Or I don't think they are. I think people are born into God until they decide they want to disobey God. My personal belief, you don't have to agree. That's fine. But God knit everyone together in their mother's womb. 
and everyone is fearfully and wonderfully made. But you don't have to agree with me. It's okay. But think about this. The prodigal son started at home. And when he left, because he started at home, let me say this, he started in the family. This goes way back into a lot of Greek and a lot of Hebrew and uh, how Adam was created out of this, this symphony, out of this dance of the perichoresis of God. And um, how Adam was kind of spun out of that and then brought back into it. It's just a lot of cool stuff. But um, think about this, that the prodigal son left. He's part of the family. When he came home, the dad, now he came home saying, I'll just be a servant. He came home because of his works expected to be lower because of what he had done. And he leaves and he comes reluctantly, I'm sure, walking around the corner and looks ahead and he sees dad sprinting to him. And as he's running, he's saying, go get my robe. Go get my ring. Y'all get the party ready. My son has come home. Now, here's a huge thing. We, we talk about the story of the prodigal son saying the lost coming home. Absolutely. But the part we miss all the time is the fact that he looked at him and said, my son has returned. How does this view, how, does this view how we view the lost? Are they lost? Yes. But what's in their DNA? So now I'm approaching somebody who's lost, and I'm not looking at them as this nasty nobody that i got to try to win from hell. I'm looking at them as a son or daughter who lost their way. So you talk about uniting at that point. I can look at somebody I completely and totally disagree with on everything, and because they're a son or daughter, and I'm a son or daughter, and they may not even know it yet, I'm called to bring them back into the family. And the first thing that that starts with is me seeing them for who they actually are in his eyes, which is not nasty. It's royalty that has lost their way. It's royalty that is settled for servanthood. I'm losing some of y'all. Y'all just hang with me, okay? Let me, let me just, uh, John 10, let me read this real fast, and I'm almost done. I'm on my last page. Um, so y'all think, no, I'm just joking. Um, John 10, 28, listen to this. It says this, uh, very familiar verse. This is Jesus talking, and he says this. Um, my, I'm going to start at 27. My sheep will hear my voice, and I know each of them, or each one, and they will follow me. Verse 28, I give them the gift of eternal life, and they will never be lost, and no one has the power to snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me as a gift is the mightiest of all and no one has the power to snatch them from my Father's care. The Father and I are one. So that's the verse. (laughs) And then Romans 8, and let me just read this real quick. Very very familiar. Romans 8 says this in verse uh, 38 and 39. It says this um, towards the end of it. So now I live with the confidence that there is nothing in the universe with the power to separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death, death, 
life's troubles, fallen angels, dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. There is no power above us or beneath us, no power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through Lord, our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One. I, that is such good stuff right there. This is where, this is where I love the word covenant rather than salvation. Salvation is right. It's the right word. But I prefer covenant. And the reason is, is because, uh, one, we see salvation today totally different. Even the word salvation is, is, is a, is a um, manifestation of the word saved. Okay? So even that carries this idea of we've been saved from. Right? Whereas in the Greek and in the Roman context, they were looking, and honestly in the Jewish context, they were looking for a savior to save them from Rome and so Paul's talking about salvation as not a warrior coming to save you from Rome, but a king coming to save you from who you used to be. So that's why he's using this salvation. I like the word covenant in our context. If it's not, or excuse me, if it's just a repeated prayer, it's easily forgotten and moved on from. If it's an eternal covenant that you're entering into, nothing can break it. Your sin, in verse 5, go back, I won't read it, but your sin wasn't powerful enough to stop Jesus from fulfilling God's plan, and it certainly isn't powerful enough to cut it short. I thought y'all did me in there, that's pretty good. Were you born again into a covenant? Or, and I'm not knocking repeated prayers, but or, did you repeat a prayer to run from the fear of hell? I mean, this is a serious question we have to ask ourselves. Were you born again into a covenant, or did you repeat a prayer to just run from hell? Backsliders, as we called them growing up, are even a thing because we have so many who accepted a religion, but not a groom. One more time. That, see, I, I underlined that thinking that would be really good. Um <laughs> Backslide, you know, I do that. I'll be like, man, this is going to be one that everybody's like, yeah, that's great. And then I'll read one that I wasn't even halfway going to say, and everybody's like, amen. <laughs> and then I'll, you know, and then I'll read the one that I was like, this is it. And I'll be like, kick, kick, kick. Um, that's the Lord, though, the Lord humbling me. Backsliders, okay, are a thing because we have so many who accepted a religion, but not a groom. I want you to go back. I'm not going to take the time to do this, but it's such good stuff. But I want you to go back and read verses 13 out in chapter 2 at some point this week. It's amazing, amazing stuff how we've been renewed and joined in union. Awesome stuff. But what I, I, how I do want to end this, and then we'll just get some questions if we have them. Um, how I do want to end this is this. This is, this is a vow that we say in our marriages. Okay? Because marriage is a covenant. If you didn't know that. And hopefully you knew that. But um, especially if you're married. But marriage, marriage is a covenant. Okay, so we, the church is called the bride of Christ for a reason because we've been entered into a covenant. Okay, this is this is the stuff. This is what we say when we vow to enter this covenant. This is just what we say. It says, "I, whoever, take you, whoever, to be my spouse in covenant, 
to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to love and cherish forever and ever, and hereto I pledge my faithfulness. That's what we say. How in the world did we get to the point where we will pledge a human our faithfulness in better or worse, yet when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we start cutting the covenant with God who created everything in the first place. Do you see the lack of trust in this? Do you see the lack of covenant and salvation? See, if I just repeated a prayer to some distant God, then when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I can easily throw that off. That was 10 years ago. Who cares? But if I entered into a covenant for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, in sickness, and in health, no matter what I'm walking through, I can be like David and say, though I walk through COVID, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through losing my job, though I walk through losing my relationship, though I walk through losing my friends, though my family doesn't care about what I'm doing in life, though my family doesn't care about my personal relationships, I will not fear for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and my cup runs over. You know what I'm saying? David, right after he says, because David walked through it. His son tried to kill him. Saul tried to kill him. Everybody tried to kill him, okay? And David's walking through this, honoring his leaders, honoring the people that has been placed in authority over him, even though they were horrible most of the time. And he's walking through all of this, literally through the valley of the shadow of death. And this is the beloved. And right after he mentions walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he says this, surely goodness And mercy, or another translation, love, will chase after me all the days of my life. How many of you left 2020 and said, goodness and mercy are chasing me? Nobody. They said, thank God, the valley of the shadow of death is over. And then we got to January, what was Tuesday? January, or Wednesday, whatever day that was. And we realized, nope, we just went into another valley. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know what I'm saying? You're walking, you're walking through this valley, and it's like, man, just get me out of this valley. Get me out of this valley. Get me. If you'll get to the point where you realize you're in a covenant. So me and Jordan could be walking through whatever, and she knows, hopefully, and trusts that me, as her groom, I have her best interest at heart. I will not let her fall. I will not let her go through things that she wasn't designed to go through because I'm going to stand in the gap in front of her. That's what I am in covenant. Jordan, at the same time, is the same thing for me. So we could be walked through sickness. We could walk through sickness. Listen, Veda, had, Veda and Jordan had the stomach bug a couple years ago. I am fine with broken legs. I'm fine with anything. But when you start puking, I don't do that. I, I, literally, I told somebody the other day, I'd rather have 100 broken legs than to puke once. And that is not a lie, okay? I rebuke all that. But, you know what I'm saying? Lord, forgive me for saying that. But, but we, so we walked through that. You talk, for me, the worst part was, was that. That was basically the worst, okay? And uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Both of them. And here's what's even worse is that in the back of your mind, you're saying, Veda had it. Two days later, Jordan had it. I'm next, you know, whatever. And uh, I never did. Um, <laughs> but probably because I used so much hand sanitizer, my hands were like uh, mummies. But anyway, I, uh, 
But we walked through that, and I remember on the other end of that, looking back and saying, you know what? I didn't leave the house. That was, that was the worst for me. I didn't leave the house. You know what I did? Even though I was afraid of puking. And this is a horrible example. But I stepped in, and guess what I did? Took care of my family. Right? Because we're in a covenant. So even in the worst, because I'm in a covenant, now if me and Jordan were just friends, guess what happens? Bye. You know what I'm saying? See, see you in a week. Um, make it two, just in case. But that, see, that's the difference, though. That's the difference. That's the difference. So people will be in church. Amen. And, amen, brother. You know all that stuff. When things are going great. And then crud hits the fan. As we call it, what God calls it is, I'm pulling you out to take you into something better. That's what he calls it. What we call it is the worst. And so, which is why we should never trust us. But anyway, we're walking through this. And the moment we see something other than what we have planned ahead, we start cutting. And we start jumping out. And we start saying, I don't even know if I believe anymore. And I don't even know if God is written. And I don't think I trust him. And I'm going to stop going to church. And I don't agree with that pastor anyway. That pastor wears jeans. What in the, you know, or whatever. So we start, doing, we start doing this. You know, and I'm joking. We start doing this. Because deep down inside, there was never a covenant. If there's a covenant, you can't break it. So Abraham has his only son in the line of the promise. Lord, I'm chasing rabbits. Had his only son in the line of the promise. And the Lord says, all right, Abraham, you've waited all these years. You have Isaiah. But I'm going to need him. Did I say Isaiah? Isaac. And um, I saw you, Isaiah, back there. Isaac. He says, I'm going to need him. What does Abraham do? Okay. Come on, Isaac. Takes him right up, ties him up, and has his arm in the air to kill his son. That sounds a terrible story, right? But, and the Lord stops him. What the Lord was trying to prove to Abraham was that he actually was capable of living in a covenant that Yahweh designed for him. And that led Abraham to being the father of, at this point, if you're reading Hebrews, every person of faith. So, what we are entering into when it comes to salvation, what we're talking about today, is we are not, this is why I talk about repeated prayers in a negative light all the time. I don't just repeat, when I get married, we didn't just say, all right, let's do it, here's some rings. There was a ceremony, there was flowers, there was cake, we had no money, you know, but there was all this stuff. And then, we, and we say, we don't just say I do, we go through these vows, we make promises, we read scriptures, we sang songs. I mean, it was just this huge moment because we're making a forever decision. It doesn't end. Wait, you know what I'm saying? Do we view salvation like that? You're not entering into something you can just peace out of when it gets bad. You're entering into a covenant with the God of creation that is so infinitely kind toward you, he sent himself in the form of Jesus to die on your and my cross to say, this is what I think about you. This is who I am. Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Showering his grace and kindness over us. This is who this is. So salvation is the culmination of seeing yourself as worthy without earning anything, opening your hands, having a receiving heart, 
and having a forever pledge. That is what Romans 8 talks about when it says creation is standing on tiptoe, waiting for sons and daughters to be manifest. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about people who are really good at praying and repeating things. It's talking about people who are willing to say yes to covenant. That is salvation. I mean, I feel like maybe from now on we should say covenant instead of salvation. That might fix a lot of stuff. So I'm going um, to pray. If y'all would bow your heads. And I'm going to ask this question. If you're watching online, then I can't see you, but you can, you can roll with us here. Um, if you, Matt, go ahead and come up here. I forgot. <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm going to just ask a couple of questions. One, we don't do this a lot, uh, but I do want to say this. If you have never been saved, and by saved I mean entered into this covenant, everything I just talked about, um, I would just love for you to just, everybody's not looking around. Would you just throw your hand up? Like if that's, if, if you've never been in a covenant with the Lord, would you just raise your hand? Awesome. You can put your hands down. All right. And then I want to ask this, and this is, this takes some guts right here. And I'm not telling you to do something that you don't feel like you're, you're supposed to do, but maybe you've repeated a prayer. And maybe you've uh, tried your best to be a good Christian. But you've never said yes to covenant. And I, and I know I'm walking on a little bit of shaky territory. But y'all, y'all, just, y'all know what I'm talking about, okay? If it's never been real. If it's been kind of, kind of flippant. Apathetic. Um, I, w- I would love to give you also an opportunity to make that real today. And so if that's anybody in the room, would you just throw your hand up? It's no big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody else? This was me about five years ago, not that long ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, y'all can put your hands down. I'm going to just pray. Um, I'm not going to lead you in a repeated prayer, but I, I do like, I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, if you raised your hand in the first group or the second group, um, I would love for you to just like pray with me and just say yes to him. Make that covenant in sickness. I mean, in sickness and in health, rich or poor, no matter what happened, no matter what I walk through, no matter what I face, no matter what I'm going through, my yes is yes. So I'm going to pray that and you can just pray that in your heart to the Lord yourself. Lord, I pray um, even for all of us who are in that covenant, I pray that you would renew that today. Even marriages go through vow renewals to continually remind both what they accepted when they first accepted it. I pray today would almost be that vow renewal for those who are saved. And for those who are not, I pray that right now you would just thrust them into a covenant, into a communion, into a union with you that causes them to see their life as you see it. That causes them to see their identity as you call them, not as the world calls them, not as even they they themselves call themselves, but as you call them, which is spotless, righteous son and daughter of God. That you love us with the same love that you love Jesus with. I pray that today. I pray that we would be a church so convinced of our covenant with you that we actually begin to host your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
so convinced that our secret place will begin to be a fire that burns and spreads into every other area of our lives until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Yahweh, thank you for those that you brought home today. Finally and fully brought home today in your name. Amen. Would y'all give the Lord a hand today? Yeah.